I'm the Reverend Dr. Jenny McKay, veterinarian, curate and minister in secular employment, environmentalist, activist and self-confessed cat junkie. But believe it or not, I have never had an encyclopedic knowledge of London bus routes, but someone who does is my guest, the Reverend Liz Clutterbuck. So Liz, we'll get the important question out of the way, first of all. Do you still have an in-depth knowledge of London bus routes? And if so, what's your favorite route? Uh, that's a really good question. I feel like in my defense, I should say that the reason I originally like set out to learn bus routes was because I, aged 11, had to commute to school in London from North London down to Westminster. And my mother's very good advice was, as pre-internet, obviously, uh, learn bus routes in case you ever get on a bus that terminates early or there's uh, roadworks or a diversion, or this is in the 90s, so like, you know, uh, an IRA bomb. Uh, and so it was her way of trying to help me stay safe in London, but I just got a little too into it. Uh, I wouldn't say, it's like, encyclopedic maybe of like North and East London, I think is probably as far as it could go. Um, and do you still use the bus quite a lot, Liz? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I over and above the cheese. Because you see more. If you ever come to London and you want to see London, just sit on a bus. Top yeah. deck, front. Yeah. Best way to see London. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I've never, I've never taken that mode of transport before in London. I'm usually down under. But um, that's something I'll have to give a try, I think. Yeah, definitely. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Liz, tell tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I know that um, your parents were both missionaries on the Polynesian island nation of Tonga. Yes, that's right. So they are both uh, ordained Methodist presbyters, uh, but I am an ordained Anglican priest. So I work in parish ministry in Holloway in North London. Um, I'm just five minutes walk from the Arsenal Stadium so that's that's my patch of London and uh, I uh, am based half-time in the parish and half-time as director of coast ordination training for the Stepney area of London which is basically East London, uh, Tower Hamlets, Hackney and Islington okay. so I'm responsible for helping to train curates uh, following their ordination for three years. <gasps> so that would have been people like me. <laughs> exactly yes. <laughs> And did your interest in the church begin at an early age? Was it influenced by your parents? Yes, I mean, I think um, there's a running joke that children of clergy kind of go in one of two directions. It's either into the church themselves or running for the hills and becoming an atheist. And I think uh, I was really lucky to live in a family where, you know, we talked about everything like dinner time was a real time of like conversation and asking questions and I think for any child who grows up in a Christian home regardless of you know whether their parents are ordained there comes a moment where you have to be able to claim your faith as your own distinct from your parents in order to you know fully embody what it means to be a Christian 
And I, you know, grew up and I went to church schools and I uh, started taking communion when I was nine or ten. And, you know, I I knew all of the the stuff, you know, I I knew my Bible, I knew all of that. But I definitely had a moment when I was 13 turning 14 and my dad had decided to take a job uh, as a theological college principal in Gloucester. We were living in North London. And unsurprisingly for a teenager, I was not very happy about having to move. And I very much had a a sort of, um, well, dad says God is calling him to this new job. But if God wants me to go there too, he better show it. Because I'm having to leave my school and my friends and, you know, all of this kind of thing. And actually, God was really faithful in that move. And... Uh, that was the moment at which I was able to kind of work out what it meant for myself to be a Christian and actually when we moved uh, my parents for a while we went to the same church but they then found a church that suited them better I carried on going to the one we started going to that had a decent youth group and it was uh, the 90s when alt worship was getting going and I joined the alt worship group and you know was able to start uh navigating my own course apart from my parents and their role in the church right so that move that move over to England really really cemented your faith for you didn't it yeah I think so and I think that's the thing um you know we see various points in particularly in children's lives where faith can get lost along the way Yes. And it seems to be going younger and younger. And, you know, moving to secondary school is one when you start having more homework and uh, teenagers, you know, really start doing sport on a Sunday, that kind of thing. But a big one's always been university. And I think that because I had had this experience as a teenager of almost like choosing which church I wanted to worship at, when I moved away from university and I came back to London, I had this moment of like, I'd already done the navigating what it means to choose your church and kind of choose your people and and so I didn't get lost at that point which I know is a point where a lot of people who've only ever just gone to church with their parents they kind of they don't really know what to do about finding a church or what it means to be a Christian as a young adult so yeah I think I kind of navigated that already yeah yeah you're right that that does happen to lots of people yeah Yeah. that that's very very common you drift away don't you when you when you do yeah. go to uni and lots of other things are pulling you yeah, in absolutely. different directions so what about this connection to uh Tongo as well do you still go back to Tonga sometimes so I've only been back once when the summer I turned 19 uh I mean it's it's very far away uh so Tonga is a thousand kilometers north of New Zealand it takes uh you know, over a day to get there um and it's a group of many many tiny islands um you might have heard of it in the news at the beginning of the year there was this big volcanic explosion in the pacific ocean just outside of the main island of tonga tonga tapu uh which devastated the islands i mean even now they're still recovering from that um so it's a very delicate ecosystem um not a particularly wealthy country um a lot of the Tongan diaspora who settle in places like uh, California and Wales and places where you can play either rugby or American football because that's you know Tongan sport 
um, you know, they send a lot of funds back to the islands. Um, right. But the interesting thing is that my dad ended up there as a missionary uh, with the with the Methodist Church. He taught at the theological college there, Fiesti College. Uh, but he um, had discovered earlier on in his, his ministry a missionary who was born in the village next to where he grew up in Lincolnshire, Nottinghamshire, um, called John Hunt, who'd been a missionary in the 19th century to Fiji. And my dad got quite inspired by this character and then ended up in the Pacific himself and has since been able to go and like visit John Hunt's grave and all of this kind of thing. So I was just lucky, I guess, to have been born in the third year that they were there. But we we have a family joke that everything that was really important in our family happened in Tonga because it's where uh, my dad got ordained. It's where my parents got married. My mum flew there five days before their marriage and they had their wedding in Tonga without any of their family present. And then I was born uh, six months before they came home. Um, and we, we have this joke because it really annoys my sister because she was born in Brent in North London. Um, but I, I feel really lucky because growing up, I was always kind of told about times in Tonga. I have a Tongan middle name, Lesieli. Uh, and so it was, it's always felt very much part of my identity. So I support the Tongan rugby team and get very excited when they're at the Olympics. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. Whenever England are playing, who uh, who would you support if Tonga? Tonga. Tonga. If Tonga <laughs> playing England, always Tonga. Partly because they're tiny. Uh, you know, Gloucester, uh, Gloucester, another really great rugby city, has the same population size as Tonga. Uh, so okay. if Tonga's playing, I'm playing England. And in actual fact, my biggest pet peeve with English rugby is how many Tongans they have poached from us. Because uh, so Kualangi, who is a very successful English rugby player, okay. is actually Tongan. And Peter Levy is another one. You know, there's quite oh, a few. Right. There's a lot come over to play in the English and Welsh leagues. Oh. And then they only have to live here for five years before they qualify to play. For okay. Oh, I didn't realise yeah. that. Yes, that is yeah. a bit yes. cheeky, and isn't it? <laughs> one of the world's most, away. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the world's most famous rugby players, Jonah Lomi. Also Tongan, but only ever played for New Zealand. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> well, I can see why why you support them. Yeah, because they yeah. really have to make the best of the people that they mm -hmm. have for the people that yeah. stay with them. Yeah. Oh. Although I, I apparently I look quite odd. So I've been to a couple of their matches and they've played over here. So when the World Cup was on a few years ago, uh, somebody stopped me, a Tongan person stopped me in the street, saw me wearing my Tongan t-shirt and said, how come you were supporting Tonga? You're not Tongan. And I said, ah, oh, I was born in Nukalofa. And she said, oh, you are Tongan. Great. <laughs> so they're all, they're all wonderful, friendly people, I can imagine. Well, yes, because uh, you might know that when Captain Cook first visited the islands, he named them the Friendly Islands oh, because of the reception he, that he had there. Um, so, yeah, so they, they are known as, as a friendly, friendly group of islands. Oh, as you say you know, climate change and everything. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very environmentally susceptible yeah. area at the moment. Isn't very, it? yeah. Yeah. So you've done, you've done quite a bit of uh, travel 
Liz, in, in your lifetime. And I, I know quite recently you've had a visit over to Seattle and that was for the yes. Parish Collectives Inhabit Conference. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened there and what was your biggest take home from the conference? Yeah, so um, Parish Collective, a really interesting organisation of Christians in the States who uh, have taken the ideas that we have in the Church of England around parish um, of serving the local community and they're really trying to explore what that means in an American context where they don't have parishes the way that we do, but maybe local churches want to be able to serve their local context in the best way possible. Um, and so what they've done is they've gathered people from all over North America, so across the US and Canada, to share stories and experiences of what they've done in their neighbourhoods, um, what's worked, what hasn't, um, what their struggles are, you know, to come together in fellowship, particularly in a, in a culture where, you know, a lot of a lot of the churches in the States are massive, you know, there's very little in the British context that compares to an American megachurch. But one of the problems with a, with a megachurch is that it doesn't really look at doing what we call contextual mission. It doesn't look at what is the neighbourhood that we're in, what what is the neighbourhood that our people come from, our congregation comes from, right. because they're so big, they're gathered from a huge area. So this movement is kind of trying to combat that, you know, Jesus calls us to be in a specific place at a specific time. Uh, and so what does that look like? Um, and it was a really valuable few days of hearing stories and um, hearing people you know, go on really long journeys to develop relationships in their community. Um, I was really touched by one, one woman I got to know uh, talks about how really simply she's built relationships in her community by saying hello. It's a thing of like, a lot of this is not rocket science. It's really simple. So uh, she she was saying how it, it she had to take the risk, take the step of starting those conversations, but actually that's been a really rewarding way of building community. Um, and then I also had the chance there to share something about what parish means in the Church of England and what it means in my particular parish, and to share some of our struggles, what's been difficult particularly since COVID. Um, and that was really interesting because on the one hand, a lot of the a lot of the people at the conference couldn't believe that you know we're the established church so everybody in England has the right to be married or baptized or have their funeral in their local parish church and this is mind-blowing in, in America because they're like oh you know, people I'm like yeah I cannot turn somebody away um from from that um but then equally you know I, some of the questions I was asking around you know my patch of London there are a uh, hundred parishes within 2.4 miles radius of me. Gosh. A hundred. And uh, you, you kind of go, you, we're, we're facing this crisis over resourcing parishes and um, what we do post-COVID. And there's some really big questions about whether, like London is still a big fan of one priest or parish, which is great, but actually can we afford to do that? And do we need to make parishes bigger? Can we do more to lift the burden of like the admin of being a parish from clergy who are really burdened with loads of stuff already? Um, so it was a good opportunity for some really, like really big 
questions. And and also the interesting contrast between um, in the Church of England, this Save the Parish movement has emerged over the last year. And yet here in America, there's a group going, let's embrace the idea of parish. Let's look at what it means to be parish in our neighbourhood. Yeah, so really, really interesting. Yeah. And and are they developing, do you feel, virtual ministry as well post-COVID? Yeah, I think there's some of that. Although I think, interestingly, because these are predominantly smaller churches, so much is to do with relationships that is formed in gatherings it's been working out how to do that in the safest way post-covid which from what i could see and this you know i didn't <laughs> didn't ask this of everybody seems to be a lot of um you know outdoor gatherings where possible um okay. um i mean i i think just from what i have seen anecdotally the summer seems to be about like outdoor and you know this part of the state so it's much easier to do that all year round than here yes. <laughs> Um, and that maybe stuff like Zoom Church comes back in the winter. Okay. Um, but that has also depended on where in the States they've been, because obviously different areas have had different attitudes to COVID. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, d- I don't feel like virtual church came up all that much. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, j- I'm just very interested in that because mm. that that's uh, that's one of my passions as well and, ju- and just seeing how that will fit in you know post-covid yeah. and with the ongoing problems as you say in parishes it will be very interesting yeah. to see how that all develops so when you were over in the states recently you were also at those protests in washington weren't you outside <laughs> the supreme court <laughs> i i was so the night i i i was really lucky to have a few days in dc after this conference then Seattle and the night that I arrived was the night that this uh, leaked opinion came out about Roe v Wade uh, in the Supreme Court and so I went down to the Supreme Court the next afternoon there was a rally um, with lots of groups um, and it's, it's one of those things I, I was talking to a friend just this week who is a minister in DC and I said to her you know I had a dog collar with me in my suitcase and it crossed my mind if I was going to a protest like that in the UK, I would have worn my collar because I'd have felt it was really important to say, I, as a church leader, am here to protest this. But in the US, I was like, this isn't this isn't my thing. My church isn't here. Um, but I did get talking with, there was a group of um, Catholics who were pro-choice um, that I got talking with and, and an Irish woman who was on holiday in DC and had felt the need to come over and protest. And we were talking to the, the same group of people um but it was one of those things I, I've I've been a big follower of US politics since I was a teenager I, I, I'm it's one of the things that I get quite nerdy about like I really like it um so it's not something you know something like Roe v Wade you know I had to learn for my A-level US politics so to be in the states at the point where it looked like that was going to get overturned felt like something that I couldn't ignore and also a sense from friends across the states or American friends who live over here when they found out I was there I got so many messages saying thank you for, for being there right. right um and so it felt to me like an act of witness that I can yes. see um yeah, yeah. you know there isn't a lot else that I can do in in that situation but I was like I just need to stand here and 
the thing that I found fascinating with um, so the this group of Catholics I got talking to said, "Oh, when you leave, make sure you check out the street, the the sign that's outside. There's a United Methodist Church building almost next door to the Supreme Court, and they do a really good line. You know those American church signs that you can kind of write. You put the letters up so it sort of says whatever you want." And they did a really good line in political um, signs or in response to whatever's going on. Um, I'm just looking up exactly what the wording is now so I don't get it wrong. But it's a really interesting moment of like speaking truth to power, which I really think is important. Yes. So, yeah, so uh, what they'd written on their sign was Christ values and trusts women. Follow Christ. That is that is very, very powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Christ yeah. trusts women. Yeah. Marvellous. Yeah. And of course, this is all happening 10 days after Easter. Yeah. Yes. The le- reading the following <clears throat> Sunday was the raising of Tabitha Dorcas. And again, this American uh, minister friend I was speaking to this week, she said you know, she preached on that passage. And she said this is about a woman who followed Christ, yes. who was a disciple, and who was trusted by her community. That's and right. we need to listen to the voices of women. Yes, yes, that's right. I remember that, that passage because I, I said exactly the same thing. We hear very little of women in the Bible, but here yeah. was a strong and a powerful yeah. woman. Yeah, the, the only woman who was referred to as a disciple as of a Christ. Disciple. So you're very interested in in US politics. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too political here, but but I know that um, you also visited um, Palestine in 2007. So that must have been another amazing experience, uh, giving you a real feel, I suppose, for the difficulties over there. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, I can't believe that that's, now 15 years ago it was July yeah July 2007 and it was um, I was working for the Methodist Church at the time in the in the World Church office as it was known then uh, and they'd had an invitation that the Methodist Church should send a young person which basically meant somebody I think under 35 and I would have been in my mid-20s uh, to this international young adults conference and so I went for 10 days and there were people from all over Europe and the state Palestinian Christians um, and a week of you know meeting different organizations working in Israel Palestine so you know we met with the UN we met with an Israeli group called Breaking the Silence we went through checkpoints um, we went through checkpoints with our Palestinian friends who got held back there was a, a day when people were arrested simply for being in a town that they didn't have the permit to be in um, you know, all these different places. And I think, I mean, I think every Christian who visits the Holy Land, like it leaves an impression on them. And we, we did pilgrimage stuff as well as the, the sort of more political humanitarian stuff. But um, it's very difficult, I think, once you've been there to forget what you have seen and the experience of particularly Palestinian Christians. Um, in Palestine's full stop, but I think it's the world forgets that there is a Christian population there as well. 
um, and they are Palestinian and they are subjected to inhumane laws. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really difficult situation. And, and one of my favourite moments that I think about quite a lot was we were in this, uh, the town of Hebron, which is a particularly divided town and there's a lot that goes on there. And there were volunteers from the Christian peacemaker teams um, there. And I got talking to a South African woman. So this is 2007. Uh, she was a black South African, she was from Soweto. And I said to her, do you, uh, do you look at this situation in Israel-Palestine and feel any kind of hope? And she said, if you had asked me 20 years ago if I had any hope for South Africa, I would have said no. But look at what has happened in South Africa since then. Yes. Um, and it, back in 2007, um, my parents at that point were living in Belfast. And obviously there's an awful lot, you, you'll know, the, the parallels with Northern Ireland as well. You know, communities where we have seen really dramatic changes and peace come and you know with the struggles that what peace looks like in those communities um and I think that's the thing you know but I now realize that's 15 years ago and actually nothing has improved no um, it, hasn't. it hasn't yes it it is it's very very sad isn't it mm. um well we, we could talk about this for for a long, yeah. long time and I, I remember I went to on a Chester diocesan pilgrimage to the Holy Land that was in I think 2011 and, and you know as you say your perceptions um, and certainly as you move across borders between, between yeah. Israel and Palestine the, the the difference between those two communities is, is stark isn't it mm -hmm. and, and the poor old Christian community is, is dwindling away isn't yeah. it and yet they're probably the community then that can hold the others, the Jewish community and the Muslim community in some yeah. sort of balance. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. it's a very, very, yeah, difficult situation over there, heartbreaking. But if we move back to your position where you are based in mm -hmm. Emmanuel Holloway and Islington, North London, have you noticed yourself a rise in engagement with the church over over the last few years, particularly with young people? I mean, to be honest, no, but I don't know how much that is to do with the very specific context that I'm in. So Islington uh, gets labelled, you know, we get called champagne socialists and so people's view of Islington is very, you know, middle upper class and lovely. And that's not really what Islington is like. Islington is the sixth uh, most deprived borough in London. And the ward where my parish is, is the most deprived ward in that borough. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking at a population which is, you know, immigrant population starting with like people from the Caribbean, the Windrush generation in the 60s and 50s, through to, you know, huge Ethiopian Eritrean population. Um, and we serve a community where there just isn't a lot. Uh, and that's really hard, you know, compared to the church where I did my curacy, which is literally 15 minutes walk up the hill in Highbury, which is leafy green and very middle class, where actually the, the children in youth work have 
increased and, and is, is you know thriving as a church school and uh thriving sort of junior church here it's much harder because you know even something simple as coming to church on Sunday is really difficult if you have to work on Sunday there's people I've got to know who I only see at church on Easter Sunday because it's the only day that the shops where they work are closed um and I think the other thing we have struggled with here is you were talking about uh online church and during COVID and whether that's continuing we couldn't do that at all um we have a congregation and live in an area where digital poverty is very high so if somebody is only accessing the internet on a smartphone on a pay-as-you-go contract asking them to watch even you know like a half an hour service on their data it's a really big and like inappropriate ask so that's I think really affected what we were able to do over the last two years Mm-hmm. Yes, that that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think the as you say, the middle class. You've got access to social media. You presume it's available for for everybody, mm-hmm. but but it's not, and no. that that's a total loss of connection with that aspect yeah. of of our society, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I, the the thing that came into its own during the pandemic was the church WhatsApp group that we started the Sunday before okay. lockdown, because the majority either can be in the whatsapp group or know somebody else who's in it who can ring them up and tell them right. what's happened that's okay. that's what we went that with was useful. Right. yeah that's worked well that's good and talking of helping the community could you tell me a little bit about your work with the social innovation collective matryoshka house ah matryoshka house yeah ah. so, <laughs> so matryoshka as in the russian babushka doll so um the the dolls where they get progressively smaller uh, and it, it doesn't exist under the name of Trishka House anymore. Um, it's now three different entities across the US and the UK. Um, but this was, I, I, it's quite difficult to explain. It does uh, both a sort of social innovation, social enterprise side of things, and also have a, like a missional community as part of it as well, um, which included a, a weekly Thursday night dinner that was an open table to anybody who wanted to come. So a gathering of people who were Christians and non-Christians, but our those of us who kind of helped set it up, keep it going, most of us were doing it from a kind of a Christian worldview. So if somebody said to you, why is it that you cook a meal for 20 every week okay. uh, and you don't charge for it? You're like, well, because, you know, Jesus teaches us to share a table with one another and to offer hospitality and... Um, that kind of thing so it was a sort of way of doing life together um and then alongside that uh an area that i've been involved with sort of professionally is um a tool that matryoshka house designed called the transformational index which is a way of measure helping an organization or a group measure their impact uh it's, it's kind of uh i'm quite passionate about um measurement in a church context and how we measure what actually matters, not just kind of what we're told to measure. Um, and so that's that's kind of the, the the side of things that I was involved with. Um, I do freelance research and when I was a curator, I was part-time. So running TI workshops uh, across dioceses and organisations was one of the ways in which I uh, supplemented my stipend for three years. Right. Okay. So you're still, you are still involved in that? 
Yes, yeah. So every so often I'll get a call. So the, okay. the British arm of it is now called the Curiosity Society. That's, ah. that's where the TI sits. Um, and so they work with organisations like Church Mission Society and uh, they've, just done some, they, they've done a lot of work with dioceses who've received um, strategic development fund funding. So the SDF funds. Um, so yes, yeah, so every so often I'll get a call. So do you have any time to do... <laughs> a workshop or some interviews with people um which is which is good fun because it keeps my hand in the research yeah. world and I get to meet really interesting people and have conversations with them yeah wonderful but you will yeah. be very very limited in time <laughs> yes yeah but um yeah it's, yeah <laughs> Uh, so what do you do to relax? I think I read somewhere that you, you, you wouldn't be interested in reading or watching The Lord of the Rings. Is that right? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, actually, no member of my immediate family has ever read or watched The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, very, like a classic book, Badge of Honour. We do not do Lord of the Rings. Um, I, so one of my favourite things on a day off, so um, my day off is usually a Friday, if there is a morning screening of a film that I want to see at a cinema where I have membership, that is like my ideal Friday morning because the phone is off, uh, you're in a dark room watching a good, uh, moderately good film. Um, and also it turns out a lot of people don't go to cinema on a Friday morning. So I quite often yeah. have screenings almost to myself. Oh. That's great. Um, and then I, you know, I'm lucky to live in like the best city in the world. Uh, so uh, that's that's a lot of fun. During um, during the lockdown last year, uh, my bubble, we came up with a plan of going for a, a lockdown walk every Saturday okay. using a guidebook of Hidden London Walks. Okay. So, um, you know, anything that gives me more fascinating facts about London and yeah, things yeah. to look out for. So kind of things. Yeah. Well, those both sound very, very relaxing things to do to take yes. you away from from the main job yes absolutely and I think a lot of people in lockdown they they found out that there are places close to where they live that they just didn't realize were there yeah yeah no that's true I mean I think I mean coming back to you know we were talking about parish ministry I think it was an opportunity to really get to know your parish like your Patch. I did more because I did so much walking around delivering things to people in the congregation. It was a lot of that kind of classic image of the vicar. I wasn't wearing my cassock, I'm not in that <laughs> tradition, but you know, marching around with a sheaf of papers through <laughs> doors and you know, and talking into people who met on the street. Because actually, it was amazing around here how many people you did bump into if you went out, you know, down the main road. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, so something something good came out of that terrible time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and something maybe not so good is that uh, the curse of the hot priest. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess it must be three years ago now. Um, Fleabag, uh, which is amazing. I love Fleabag. I think it's one of the best TV programmes ever yeah, made. she's good. And um, <laughs> series two features this character the hot priest I think he's only referred to as the priest in the credits but he is like universally acknowledged to be the hot priest Andrew Scott and um there was a really interesting so I I'm always interested probably as you are whenever clergy are depicted 
in popular culture because you know, quite often it's done really badly and it you know Rev is still like pretty much the best example oh, yeah. but you, you know so so I I love Fleabag I fell in love with the hot priest like seemingly everybody else did and I cried at the end um there's there's one scene which is really problematic involves the confessional but uh one of the things that happens following the series was that people started I kept I kept seeing online uh talk of hot priests <laughs> and there was an article in the Guardian which was odd on multiple levels and the first the first odd thing about it was it was actually written by an American in New York about a church in New York so I'd kind of it, to me it would have made more sense as a British person writing about a British church because Fleabag is British and so is the Guardian uh but this article came out that this person who said, oh, there's, there's a hot priest in Fleabag. I'm going to set out and see if my local church has a hot priest. <laughs> and they go to this church in New York, in Manhattan, and they talk about going to the service, receiving communion. Like they go in and they're looking and they describe, they describe two out of the three clergy people who were on duty that day. And I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was two women and one man. And so they're talking about the attractiveness, but I knew of two out of the three. And I wrote a, a, an article in response to this, just, just on my own site. Like I, didn't, I didn't contact the Guardian <laughs> and say, can you please publish a rebuttal of this? But for me, one of the deeply problematic things is that as a, as a woman priest and as somebody who, you know, I... I I passionately believe one of the reasons I'm in the Church of England is, is to be a woman here and to, you know, fight for things like women bishops and fight for equality and all of all of that thing. And, and one of the things that women in leadership in the church have had to deal with is um, people being unable to distinguish between women as like almost sexual objects and women who are priests. And there's been some research in the United Methodist Church where they've gathered comments that men had made to women clergy that reference like their body or one of them was when you say in communion this is my body all I can think of is your body under your cassock you know just like terrible things so I was kind of like yes the priest is back is hot but if we are setting out to like I I think I was talking about that like the fetishization of hot priests actually what we're doing is applying a lot of the stuff that women have had to really battle to overcome uh and and it's just inappropriate like it's inappropriate when you do it to a woman and it's inappropriate when you do it to a man but the um almost the funniest thing about this was that after i had published the article on my website and i shared it on facebook a friend of mine who is a priest in new york commented on it and said ah funny thing about this i am the third priest who was on duty that day who does not get mentioned in the article uh-huh. and she said she said you know luckily I have a good sense of humor uh but I could have interpreted this as I am not hot at all and yes. she didn't mention me so already the article is terrible but then she's kind of come out of it going what and you didn't see I <laughs> yes. wasn't even I wasn't considered as a hot priest oh, Um, and it, it's it's funny because it makes me think and I, I just only very recently a friend of mine turned out hadn't, hadn't watched series two of Fleabag she watched the first one I was like oh you've got to watch it hot priest and she said oh 
can you can you say pot priest? And I was like, well, he is universally referred to as pot priest. But I can tell you <laughs> my mini thesis on why this is a problematic thing to do. Um, but yeah, really, just a really interesting thing about like being careful about how we use language and actually what the wider implications of that is. Um, and also, yes. like, please don't ever go to communion service and take communion just so you can get up close and personal no. with a priest. Like, it's just not. No, that, that's, not, <laughs> that's not good. I didn't see no. the second series, but it's making me, me squirm as well. I think yeah. I really enjoyed Rev. I mean, he, he is a really nice, ordinary guy or he seems to be anyway <laughs> <laughs> yes and stuff happens to him which I know has happened to people who yes. I know yes. um luckily not so much the breakdown during midnight mass but but I mean you know there's the, 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 an episode in fact it might be the midnight mass episode where he is desperately trying to get to visit an elderly person and stuff keeps happening and he can't get there he can't get there and he gets there and she's already died and I think most clergy at some point in their ministry have that happen to them. Like, I know my dad, after he watched that episode, he said, yeah, that happened to me. It was awful. Oh, but yeah. we actually can't be everywhere at all times. No. And, like, ministry calls us in, like, nearable different yeah, yeah. directions. It's actually showing that is really great. Because yes. I, I think often what we see on TV are that, you know, the priests who rock up at the hospital and the funny clothes and do do something that we probably would never do if we were actually called to a hospital that's right that's right I yeah think, I, yeah i think we have to choose the human aspect of the priest yeah doesn't it yeah, yeah which is yeah. much more important so liz what's uh next on the horizon for you in your busy life <laughs> <laughs> any plans um that's a really good question um so at the moment um so because part of my role is looking after curate we're heading into ordination season so we have our precincts next week and deacon ordination at St Paul's Cathedral at the beginning of July which is always pretty oh. spectacular and particularly because these are the first uh sort of normal in the vertical ordinations for three years so yes. that's a big deal um so yeah so I've got new intake of deacons coming in which is great oh. it's, the thing I love about working with curates is that um, you get to work with people who are right at the beginning of their ministry, so they're not they're not jaded and cynical, and they're usually quite <laughs> enthusiastic. <laughs> no, um, so it's it's like it's quite an encouraging part of my work is getting to know them and hearing what they're doing, and they're all so different. I mean, it's partly the joy of being in London. Um, so they're a really really diverse group of people, but yeah, so I've got a new a new cohort of deacons to get to know from the beginning of July uh, and then then holiday that's, that's pretty much the next thing on the agenda not not to Tonga I suspect no no I'd like to go back one day but uh yeah it's, it's a very long way to go it is it is um yeah well, I wish you all the very best for these new deacons. I have Thank no you. doubt that you're an inspiration to them. Um, <laughs> it's been very, very nice talking to you, Liz. Um, and I've been inspired, I think, on on several things. I think the first one will be next time I'm down in London to mm -hmm. do that trip around on the on the bus as well. Yeah, and I think if I get a free Friday morning, I'm going to see if I can pop to the local cinema as well. <laughs> yeah, do that.
<laughs> so thanks for being on the podcast Liz no problem thank you Jenny take care okay bye bye